welcome to Doing the Work, Frontline Stories of Social Change, where we bring you stories of real people working to address real issues. I am your host, Shimon Cohen. In this episode, I talk with Dr. Melissa Bird, Missy of Bird Girl Industries, where Missy empowers women to engage in advocacy. We talk about challenging injustice and how people's fear of doing it perfectly holds them back. Missy shares a story of using advocacy to empower a client, explains the graceful revolution, and tells the story of when she wrote a bill to emancipate homeless youth, organized a coalition, and lobbied to get the bill passed, which it did when she was a graduate student. Missy encourages everyone to find their jam and get involved. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hi, Missy. Thanks so much for coming on, doing the work. Really glad to have you on here. And just to get started, would you please share a little bit about what you currently do? (laughs) Hi, thank you so much for having me on. Um, That's kind of a loaded question. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I do a lot of things. So I am a writer. and um, I, <laughs> I've been writing books. So I write essays, and um, I just had a book published um, about careers in social justice advocacy that I wrote for social workers. And then um, I also, um, so I post my writings on my blog and on Patreon, on my Patreon page. And then I do blogging. And I am a professor, so I teach in the School of Social Work at Portland State University. And I've been teaching for a number of years in various um, colleges um, throughout my career as a social worker. But um, I do that. And then I'm also a coach. I do life coaching. And I specifically train, um, coach and train women to do, to engage in advocacy on their own terms. And then I... um, I also do workshops, uh, community-based workshops to help train people to engage in advocacy in their own communities so they can make a change in their communities. That is a lot that you do. And I had, you know, I had looked up what you do. So I kind of wanted to start broad and then narrow it down with one of the things you write about in terms of your education and training for women and communities is this graceful revolution. So I was hoping you would speak a little bit about what is the Graceful Revolution? So the Graceful Revolution um, is something that actually came to me in the middle of the night um, when um, I actually was woken up at like 3.33 in the morning or some weird time in the morning. And um, and I... Um, and I like roll. I don't wake up usually in the middle of the night, but I rolled over and wrote it in my notes on my phone. And then um, the next morning, I thought it was just a dream and that it didn't happen. And I woke up and I saw that my phone had something on it, and I I opened it and I was like, "Oh wow, this is a really great note, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is really genius." And basically, um, it said what it said was um, that I believe in a new brand of advocacy um, to help. Um, give people um, the tools um, to infiltrate the membranes of power so that they can engage in advocacy um, and change the world, basically. And so um, I'm actually pulling it up my, on my phone right now because I can't remember it exactly. And I wanted to um, 
quote from it, but I really, one of the things that was really amazing was I said, um, it's where we humble, humble ourselves to our shortcomings and engage in acts and graceful revolution that bring light to the true reality of people's lives. And one of the things that I realized is that a lot of times the things that keep people from engaging in advocacy, whether it's in their own lives or in the lives of other people, is that um, they're afraid of doing it imperfectly and they're afraid of being imperfect. And um, for a lot of people, that stops them from help either helping other people or really engaging in their own dreams and doing what they want to do. And so um, I think it's okay to like embrace our imperfection and our shortcomings and, and then use that knowledge to go out and, and change um, on our own terms and in our own spaces and help um, and engage with other people in their own spaces. Because I think that especially now, like when I wrote this, it was 2014 and I actually called a friend of mine and I was like, I said, oh my gosh, you're never going to believe this. No, I didn't call her. I instant messaged her and I sent it to her and she was like, wow, that's so beautiful, but we're not ready for it yet. And I was like, what are you talking about? She's like, (laughs) hold on to that. And so it was funny because I was like, no, this is genius. Like, this is good stuff. And she's like, we're not ready yet. And it was 2014. And then the election happened. And then she sent me a message and she goes, I think we're ready now. And I was like, yeah, I think we might be. Yeah, maybe. Maybe so. So that's when I really launched launched it as really um, sort of the foundation for all of the work that I do. And what does it look like to put that into practice? So let's say you're working with an individual in, in helping that person to learn how to do advocacy work. What does is, what is that process look like? Well, so I actually have a really um, good example from when I was doing my um, practicum, my second year of my MSW. And um, I had a client, I was working with women who um, were um, trying to resolve their trauma, um, who uh, were on TANF and, you know, they have to go to a certain amount of counseling in order to keep their TANF benefits to deal with their mental health issues. And so I was working with this woman and she was really getting upset because she, um, she was going to lose her benefits and she didn't know how she was going to take care of her kids. And I asked her, I said, do you vote? And she was like, what are you talking about? Why would I vote? And I said, because the people that are making the decisions about whether or not you get to keep your food stamps and your welfare while you resolve your traumatic issues, because you're, you know, she, she had a lot of stuff going on and she'd been a victim of domestic violence and she had a lot of things happening in her world. And, and I said, those people that are making those decisions are the ones that you leave in power because you're not voting. And she was like, well, tell me more about that. And so what long story short is I ended up teaching her how, as part of her treatment, how to um, learn how to vote and, and how to go to the library and where to look for the pamphlets. And cause this, mind you, this was 2003. So this was before the age of Googling, right. And the internet it was before you could get online and register to vote. And, um, and I taught her that whole entire process and taught her how to find her own elected officials. And what she ended up doing was going back to her housing complex and getting all those women who were on TANF and, and who were in Section 8 housing. To, she taught them who their elected officials were and how to vote. And they ended up empowering themselves to engage in this huge action. And he actually started to shift his views about women um, who were engaged in using um, the social safety net. And it was really, really, really amazing to watch. And so that's like on a micro level, how I did that in clinical work, how I do that on a more community-based level is that I have, um, 
I have really uh, found that when you bring groups of people together to talk about um, what lights them on fire and what excites them and to help them tap into what I call their jam, when they tap into their jam and figure out what they're truly passionate about, then they'll go out and do that thing. And I think a lot of what we're seeing and a lot of what is overwhelming to all of us is um, we, that everything we're seeing all these things, especially as social workers, we're seeing all these things that directly impact us and our clients kind of being torn apart. And so my jam is when reproductive justice and women's reproductive health. That's my thing. That's what I hold dear. Um, but like for other people, it's the environment or it's welfare or it's homelessness or it's housing or it's, you know, aging or disabilities. And, um, once you tap into that, then you can engage in really beautiful acts of revolution. And it doesn't take a lot. It just takes simple little things to put that ripple out and make a difference. And is that kind of the message you'll, you'll share when you're with the community and then and then, of course, there would be some logistical steps like you did with that client, right? Like actual, this is how you register to vote. What does that look like when you're working with a community in terms of those steps that you see that communities need to learn how to take that step forward into doing advocacy work? So there's a couple of different um, uh, sort of exercises that I take communities through. Um, one is all about uh, writing down like the top three things that they really feel that make them feel excited. So, um, especially when I, when I'm working with women, I'm like, what flips your skirt? Like what totally does it for you and makes you excited? You know, what, what is just lighting you up and making you feel passionate? Is it gun reform? Is it education? Like whatever it is, write it down and they write down their top three things. And then we go through some, you know, sort of visualizing about, uh, what that looks like in their own world. And so that they can see that if they focus on that one thing, they can communicate with all the other stakeholders and players that could make that thing a reality or enable them to make a change. And so um, I take a lot from my own experience as, you know, a social worker and also my experience doing um, citizen lobbying workshops and things like that to really teach people how to um, take that jam and take that passion and then translate it into this is how you, if you want to run for office, this is how you would run for office. And this is how you would find those resources. If you want to start, you know, um, get a group of people together to engage in collecting shoes, then this is how you would do that for the homeless people, you know? So I, I really let them sort of, when I'm working, especially in the community with groups of people, I let them drive what they want to do. And then they just give them the tools to take it and go back into their communities. I had one woman in Indiana who didn't really know what she was doing in my workshop. It was really funny. Um, I call these workshops fanning the flames. And she, she was like, not really sure if she was going to resonate with my message and then she realized throughout the course of the workshop that what she really wanted was to run for county council because county council had been stopping, had been creating some problems for her. She was a, she, her husband was a farmer and they had a farm, but she was also a realtor and she'd run into some issues with the county and she, and by, you know, the end of two hours, she was like, oh, I could just run for council and change all of this. That's genius. And I was like, yes, do that. So she's not running yet, but she's building, she's, she's, gotten excited about it. And that's, that's really awesome. Not everybody's going to run for office. Like 
you know, and not everybody has to, to make a change, especially now we need everybody doing the thing that makes them excited right now. I think that's an incredible story where someone wasn't even sure why they were in this workshop. I mean, maybe you were you brought in by the county or um, not by the county, but how did she even end up in your workshop, I guess? I was at, a, I got asked to do a conference, a, a workshop at a conference and it was um, a women's empowerment conference. And so I was just doing my workshop and I had about 10 women in there and, and she was like, and one of her friends had dragged her, like, you know what I mean? Like she was like, she was not having it. And so by the end of it, it was really cool. It was really fun to watch her. Yeah, that is amazing. And I think what you're saying really resonates. So um, with a lot of students, I, you know, I work with and clinicians, practitioners out in the community often feel very stuck when it comes to policy advocacy. There's confusion about how to do it. And then the space that might exist with with clients, you know, especially with billing and how the agency would even view that if they if they did engage in that. So I was wondering if you could kind of speak to that. Yeah. So one of the one of the things when I teach my um, BSW and MSW students is the opportunities for advocacy within an agency or an organization, and part of part of this, um, I really truly think uh, revolves around um, knowing. Um, just enough to be dangerous. <laughs> so having my students and, and having social work students really understand where budgets come from. So if you're working within an agency, because then you can understand the rules, why the rules are the way they are. And it all goes back to budgeting because incentives drive behavior. And if incentives drive behavior, then this all goes back to money and we can tie it straight back to money all the time. So if you understand that how the federal government really filters money down to state governments, which filters down to counties, which filters down to sometimes cities, but not always, uh, you can understand when you're working for a social service organization where that money came from and why there are rules around those specific pots of money, especially when it comes to things like um, HUD money and um, uh sort of substance abuse funding and the way we fund uh, child welfare and um, community development block grants. I mean, there's a lot of spaces where you have to understand where that originates and it all originates in Congress. And so I always tell my students that um, it's really hard to make a difference legislatively at a federal level, but there is a way to influence how that happens at a local and state level. And um, so if you understand how your agency, why your agency has the rules in place that it does and how they get funded, whether it's from private donations and public money or both, like if it's public and private, which typically when you've got substance abuse things going on or mental health things or housing stuff, if you're working in those and aging, if you're working in those areas, um, sometimes nonprofits rely on federal money and um, private donors. And so if you understand all of the way you get funded, then you can talk about either with your staff or with the, you know, the people that you're working with, you can talk about going to county council and talking about what this actually, you know, what affordable housing actually looks like in your area, you know, what this would do for your clients and how this would be helpful. You know, you can go to your state elected officials and say, this has been my experience um, with my clients. And you don't, 
violate their confidentiality, but you talk about how what you're experiencing, for example, is I had 10 clients come in who are all going to lose their TANF because they're not ready to go back to work because they've had all this trauma. You have to do something about this. You can't just cut these people off. They have had all these experiences. And even in the most polarized environments, telling people stories is what shifts elected officials' minds. And that filters up to the federal level and changes those dynamics. And so that's how I have handled that. I don't know if I even answered your question, but I think Yeah, no, I, I think that's really helpful in terms of people on, you know, kind of mobilizing their agency to take a step forward. I hear a lot of confusion about what agencies are allowed to do, what nonprofits are allowed to do. And so I'm always trying to put out that information with, with students where the students maybe sometimes are the ones that need to educate the nonprofit of like, look, look at this paper, look at this document. This says nonprofits can do this and they can't do that. How do you, you know, how do you work with nonprofits around that? So I've, I've always wanted to, I haven't directly worked from with nonprofits and I would love to, like, I would love to um, really educate, especially administrative staff about what they can and cannot do when it comes to lobbying and, and advocacy, because there's a difference between lobbying and advocacy and there's, um, and there's a stark difference. And I really think it undermines our power to not engage, um, to not engage, um, on, in, in advocacy at a city, county, and state level. I think there is a lot of room for opportunity for nonprofits to engage in making some changes, not um, about partisan politics and not about, um, and not about anything that involves direct lobbying, but uh, nonprofit organizations can encourage their clients you know, they can inform their clients, this is happening and this directly affects the services we provide. You could go to this meeting and testify as a, as a member of our community and you could empower yourself to do that and you can do that. And I have had um, students um, during their practicums who have told their clients, listen, they're, they're voting to cut substance abuse funding if you don't want them to do that because that's going to directly impact your, you know, your ability to get services. You should go to this county council meeting and talk about it. And like 10 of them go and then, and then the county council goes, wow, this actually directly impacts people in my community. The other way that I think nonprofits could really engage in helping with advocacy efforts is to let their, not just their constituents and their clients, but their supporters know this bill is coming up on the Hill. This bill directly impacts in the following, us in the following ways. We hope that you would be willing to do something about it because you support our work and you love our work and you love what I do. So get in touch with your, you know, elected officials and let them know that this, how this directly impacts your life. And a certain percentage of nonprofit work can go to that and it's okay. And it doesn't, you're not going to get in trouble. Right. And back to your client that you had that example with, it seems like there was a therapeutic benefit Oh, she was so empowered after that. She she knew that she was unstoppable. And there is absolutely a therapeutic benefit to to helping our clients. I had a student in San Bernardino when I was teaching there um, last year, and she um, she had a group. I I I taught my students how to you know have this conversation with your clients, and she had a group. This just struck me. She had a group that she was working with, and and they were um, 
they were really having some issues and I can't remember exactly what the topic was, but man, she took it to them and they just, and they just ran with it. Like they, and she said, it was amazing. Three weeks later, these clients have had a complete and total shift. Like they're not, what was me anymore? They're like, hell yeah, Mm -hmm. I can do something. And you know that they might be on a roller coaster for a while, but the minute you empower them with something like that and someone listens to them, because this is the other thing we know about elected officials, they really like their jobs. They like to stay in office. And if you have an elected official who's not facing, um, uh, they're not limiting, you know, they don't have the limit. The Why can I think? Term limits. Right? Term limits, yeah. <laughs> if they're not facing term limits, then you have, you know, a huge opportunity to be like, listen, I'm a constituent. And that's how you should always start a message. Whether you're training your clients to have the message, whatever it is, I am your constituent. This matters to me because of A, B, and C. Three bullet points. I need you to know that this impacts my life directly in A, B, and C. And if you want to talk to me further about it, I'd be happy to talk to you. And I think that that just makes a huge difference in a client's life to be able to say, hey, you know, Senator so-and-so, you've got this piece of legislation that's going to directly impact me and my children, and this is how. Absolutely. And I like that you break it down in a really concise way so that, you know, that helps people with that fear of doing it imperfectly, right? Just to get them start, get people started. Because once people get started, then they're going to evolve and they're going to learn from there. But it's really just the start that I think holds a lot of people back. Well, and if you're speaking your truth, there's no wrong message. Like if you're saying the truth of what your true lived experience is, then there's no wrong message. It doesn't matter where you come from or who you are. When you're speaking your truth, there's no wrong message. You can't be wrong. Missy, how did you get into this work? (laughs) So um, I've always been a rebel. Um, I had like one woman protest in high school. Um, (laughs) I I've always been a rebel. And um, when I was getting my MSW, I did research on homeless LGBT youth in Utah. So I was getting my MSW from the University of Utah. And um, I, I was interested in, and this was back in 2001, 2002, when we were barely starting to have the conversation about queer kids, um, homeless youth, and all of those queer kids in foster care and all of those things. And so I, um, I, did that research for my research class um, with the only organization that was helping homeless youth, um, the Volunteers of America Homeless Youth Resource Center. I think it's still the only place in Utah that really does dedicated homeless youth services. And I knew that, so we had, Utah was no different. All, you know, we had 35% of our homeless youth identified as LGBTQ. And um, I knew that the law, because I'd done some child welfare work previously, and I knew that the law said that you couldn't foster a youth for longer than eight hours without parental consent or emancipation. And I knew we didn't have an emancipation bill. So even though the statute said parental consent or emancipation, I knew we didn't have an emancipation law. And I knew there was no way I was going to change that eight hour law yet. I just knew the the conservative nature of the legislature. And so I wrote an emancipation bill on my dining room table and I often teach my students. I'm like, this is the only place where you can plagiarize. So it's called model legislation. So I took the 26 bills from 26 other States and literally like high, I printed them out because this is back in the day before the Googles. Right. And so I, I highlighted all the sentences that I thought would fit um, and just really literally cut and pasted them 
and typed them all out into what I thought looked like a pretty decent bill. And I called um, an elected official who I had known from my work at the CASA program. I used to work for the CASA program and Roz McGee was her name. And I called Roz and I said, Hey, I've written this bill. She was the head of Utah children when she was working and, and I knew she was way into child welfare. And I, and let me just say, no, never burn a bridge because you never know when somebody's going to be really helpful to you in the future. And, um, and I called Roz and, and I said, I have this bill. And she said, well, send me your ideas. And I emailed it to her and she called me like five minutes later. And she said, Missy, you've written an entire law. And I go, I know people don't do that. And she goes, no, Missy. <laughs> That's what we have the office of legislative research and general counsel for. And I was like, well, I don't know where it fits in the, in the code. And she's like, okay. So basically I'd written this whole bill and she, she just laughed. But, um, and so we got, um, she said, well, you need to build a coalition. And I was like, Oh, I know how to do that because I'm a social worker. So I just started calling all the agencies that would be directly education, um, uh, criminal justice, child welfare, you know, substance abuse, and mental health. Like I just started calling all the agency workers that I'd known from being a social worker. And I was like, hey, I'm running this bill. And they were like, you're never going to pass that. I was like, yes, I am. And they're like, you're taking kids away from their parents. And I'm like, I'm not. They've already thrown them away. It's okay. Like, we can message this. And um, and I built this coalition of like 40 different organizations. Um, Cold called the attorney general's office because he was really interested in the polygamous boys that were becoming homeless at really high numbers at that time. And I just cold call, called Mark Shirtliff's office. And I said, hey, I need a meeting with the AG. And his secretary was like, for what? <laughs> so I've written this bill about emancipating homeless youth. And she said, well, you, I'm only giving you 10 minutes because I don't know who you are. And I was like, that's okay. And I was in the office with them for 45 minutes. And, and we ended up being really good friends and um, like talk about complete polar opposites politically. But this is really the thing I think social workers are really, really great at. We know how to approach people where they are. We, we don't, we know how to sit and listen and hear people and then say, well, ha- here's an idea for you. Here's how I think we could do this better. And they go, oh, okay. And so it makes us ideally suited for doing advocacy work in this kind of work. And long story short, the first, we ran it um, and it failed at 11.59 and 59 seconds, the last day of the legislative session, right before they hit the gavel at midnight. And um, I was devastated. And then I went and a particular woman, her name was Gail Ruzica, and she was the opposite of me. Um, she had been lobbying against it on a parents' rights issue, and I said, "Gail, what's it going to take to get this um, to get this passed?" And she said, "She said you need to have a line in there that says that nothing in this this measure is meant to take away the fundamental liberty rights of parents." And I said, "Okay." So we added that line because here's the other thing: know how to compromise. Like, okay, that wasn't going to destroy the the measure and the purpose of the bill. That wasn't going to impact whether or not kids were going to be able to get emancipated. And so I said, okay. And I, um, I threw it in the next year. I got two Republican sponsors on it. Roz sort of took a back seat, got the Republican sponsorship and got it passed. Unbelievable. That is, that is a That's phenomenal how I started. story. Cause I taught myself how to lobby. I taught myself how the system worked. I, I talked politics with my grandma and my auntie for years. And so I sort of understood how a bill became a law, but I taught myself all of that and just learned how to do it. And we're good at that, like as social workers. So in all my classes, it doesn't matter what I'm teaching. Even if I'm teaching theory, 
the very first class, my students learn how a bill becomes a law in their state, no matter where we are. Critical. In any class, that's just something you review first day. Oh, yeah. And none of them know what, how to do it. Like maybe sometimes there's one, but for the most part, nobody knows how a bill becomes a law in their state. Yeah, that is something that um, we see as well. And it's uh, kind of shocking. I'm not really because it's something that everyone should learn in grade school. Yeah. And the legislatures make it really easy. They usually have a PDF of a cute little map, like a roadway, you know, and I say cute because literally they put cartoons on it, but every state does that. Like every single state, if you get on the state legislative website, will have how a bill becomes a law. And if you click on it, there's a little PDF roadmap and you can print it and give it as a handout to your class. It's genius. And what's the student's response? Um, usually they roll their eyes at me at first and I'm like, listen, this is going to come in handy down the road. I know you don't think it is, but I promise you it is. And, um, and so they roll their eyes, but I, I sort of go through it and then I go through it again at the end of the quarter or semester. Right. So I bring it back and inevitably if I've done my job, well, I've, I've taught them this process very subtly throughout the entire quarter or semester. And then they're like, Oh, Oh, I get it. Oh, 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 I get it. So, um, even in my theory classes, I teach them that because theory is the basis for advocacy and social justice. Like you have to have a theory because you have to justify your work. Absolutely. And you might have to speak about that when you're sitting down with someone who's on the opposite side of the issue, but is willing to give you 10 minutes. The fact you got 10 minutes is amazing. Like, it's like, well, we don't know you, but we'll give you 10 minutes. It's like, thank you. <laughs> well, and, and elected officials really, truly. So here hear from so few of their constituents that I used to have Utah legislators tell me if they hear from five or more people, they consider that majority rule five people because so few people get in touch with them. Well, if we're the ones who are the ones who are communicating with them, then we could easily get 10 people to communicate with their elected officials. And that's all it, I, it really, they're, they're just people. They put their pants on one leg at a time. They're just humans. And, and this is what I really want people to remember, especially social workers. These are not people that are sitting up high in the sky, sort of on some high horse somewhere doing something magical. They're not magical unicorns. They're just human beings. And in most states, I, I like truly in most states, they're farmers and housewives and nurses and they're not all attorneys you know they're business people they don't they don't have a background in law they just decided to run for office one day so they're just humans so talk to them like they're humans they're not special they think they're special but they're not special i love the message i think it's great i'm so glad to have you on here and before we go is there just anything you want to share you know before we wrap up i really um I really want everybody who listens to this podcast to know that um, there is nothing uniquely special about what I have done in my life. I just knew what made me excited. And then I figured out the best way to do that thing. And I truly believe that if you tap into what makes you really excited and you think about it really hard about why you became a social worker in the first place or why you're even listening to this podcast because maybe you're looking for some sort of motivation to get you going, I don't know. But when you tap into that thing, some days, even when the days are hard, it just means you can, you can push through your fear and keep going forward. And if you keep doing that thing, 
you will eventually make a change and you can do that. And I am surrounded by fabulous quotes and all of the women that inspire me and men, but all of the pictures around my office and all of the things around me that inspire me, remind me that I can do this work every day. And if you surround yourself with people like that, there is nothing you can't do. Nothing. And I also want to say, if you want to work with me, that, um, you can find all the information about how to work with me on birdgirlindustries.com. And you can follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at birdgirl1001. And then I have a Patreon page um, where people can become supporters of my work at patreon.com backslash birdgirl. No, forward slash. It's forward slash. I keep screwing that up. Forward slash birdgirl1001. There's a theme here. Um, and, um, I post exclusive content over there and it's all my writings and I do some exclusive videos and there's going to be some amazing videos of my kids talking about how they engage in advocacy, um, that I'm going to be posting throughout the year. And so that's a really cool opportunity too to engage in my work in a really meaningful way. So, and I'll put links to all of that in the show notes. So when people are listening for listeners, you can look in the show notes and get links to all of Missy's contact information and websites and Twitter so you can follow along. Misty, thanks again for coming on here and thanks for doing the work. Thanks for asking me. I really appreciate you doing this work too. It's awesome to connect with you. Thank you for listening to Doing the Work, Frontline Stories of Social Change. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please follow on Twitter and leave positive reviews on iTunes. If you're interested in being a guest or know someone who's doing great work, please get in touch. And thank you for doing real work to make this world a better place. Thank you.